0: Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength; they shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary; they shall walk and not faint. Trust in the Lord. With, uh, excuse me. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusted in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. So we'll have our... Have a few moments of silent prayer just to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Psalmist says that is it is in your light that we see light. Only as we submit to the teaching of your word and do we come to an accurate understanding of the nature of reality, the universe as you have created it, the reality of sin in our own lives, and the additional reality of your abundant grace that has provided the perfect solution through the substitutionary atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ, and through the revelation of your complete canon of Scripture to us. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and that we might be challenged by them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we began our study of 1 Corinthians. So open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We began last time by looking at the background to this church and to this city. Corinth was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. It was a port city. It was a city not unlike a combination of Las Vegas, Los Angeles, New York. had a little bit of everything to offer. There was probably no sin that was left unpracticed. No carnality that was left unlusted for. They had just a little bit of everything going on in Corinth, and it was the good time city of the Roman Empire. And so when Paul came there in approximately 51 AD, he discovered that there was a synagogue there. There was a large Jewish segment there because, it, as a port city, there was a tremendous amount of commerce, a tremendous amount of trade between East and West. As I pointed out from the map last week, it's situated uh, just south of the Isthmus of Corinth where there are two bays that come together. And rather than have the ancient ships uh, traverse the around the Peloponnesian Peninsula, which was quite dangerous, they would uh, transport the goods from one bay to the other across the narrow six miles of the Isthmus. Consequently, there was a large commercial community there, and that would, of course, attract many Jews to the area and those who were practicing trades and various businesses, and so they had founded a synagogue there. And as was Paul's custom, when he would come to a town, he would first go to the synagogue and he would begin to communicate to the Jews there that Jesus had come and he was the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament, and he would begin to... uh, Explain the scriptures in that light. And, of course, before long, there would rise up some opposition, as happened in Corinth, and they were quite opposed to him. And even though the president of the synagogue had become saved, they, Paul left, but he didn't go far. He went across the street to a place next door, and he set up a, uh, another uh, base of operations for the new church, and that's about where we ended last time, just looking at those opening opening uh, incidents in Acts chapter eighteen, and at the end of that time, we saw that the Jews tried to take him to court to try to uh, have the this new Christian religion declared illegal, and that failed and Gallio, who was the proconsul in Corinth at the time, wouldn't even hear it. he just thought it was some sort of intra fraternal uh, argument among the Jews, and so he threw him out of court, and in the midst of the anti- obvious anti-Semitic overtones of the courtroom scene, the Jews in the synagogue got mad at their own leader, the one who had taken uh, the place of the former president. The new president was Sosthenes, and they began to beat him up, and we find Sosthenes mentioned again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, and now we find that he too has become a believer. And now he is traveling with Paul, and he is with Paul in Ephesus. And so Paul includes him in the greeting to those who are back in Corinth. Now, Paul founded this church in Corinth, and he spent about 18 months there where he taught the church, organized it, and grounded them in basic doctrine. There seems to be little that he did not teach them, although in terms of specifics, there were still a number of questions. And one of those questions at its root had to do with the spiritual life. And if we want to hang uh, 1 Corinthians on any specific subject, it has to do with what is the nature of spirituality and the spiritual life. It touches on many other areas because there was almost no problem that we face in a modern church or in modern society that the Corinthians didn't face. There were problems with marriage, problems with divorce, problems with whether or not to marry an unbeliever, problems related to... uh, Doubtful things, problems related to spiritual gifts, problems related to uh, cliques in the congregation and uh, groups organizing themselves around various personalities. In the church, personality is not the issue. The personality of the pastor is not the issue. Believe me, I've been around lots of pastors, and pastors come with all kinds of personalities. And it is never the personality of the pastor that should be an issue or anybody else in the church. The issue is always the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul spent 18 months in Corinth, and then he was followed by a, another pastor uh, by the name of Apollos, who was an excellent speaker and orator, but he was short on doctrine. He did not; he was not well grounded on doctrine, and so they, uh, the people there got beautiful sermons, which is what happens in so many churches today, wonderful oratory, excellent rhetoric, but very little content. That's probably one reason why things began to fall apart. They became so divisive during that time that Apollos left. In fact, by 1 Corinthians 16, Paul tells them that he wanted to send Apollos back to them, but Apollos refused to go. He didn't want to have anything to do with that divisive bunch of Corinthian believers. Having pastored churches that resembled the Corinthian church, I can um, attest to the fact that that's the last place you really want to be. It's not a very pleasant thing. It's a great learning experience, though, for a brand-new pastor, sort of put-up-or-shut-up kind of thing. It's... But the Corinthians had a little bit of every kind of problem there, and eventually what happens is Paul sends them a letter, which is referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to straighten some things out. It did not succeed. We don't have a copy of it. It obviously was not meant to be included in the canon of Scripture. Therefore, it was not inspired, but it was the uh, teaching of the Apostle Paul back to the Corinthian church. It apparently generated a number of more questions and problems because the root problem in Corinth, which is really the root problem with everybody's failure in the Christian life, isn't a problem of authority. Whenever we get into extended carnality, the problem is the authority of God and the authority of the Scriptures. We prefer to uh, be our own authority in life rather than follow the authority of Scriptures. And so the issue is authority. And here, of course, it's the authority of the Apostle Paul. And the church in Corinth has basically rejected his authority outside of a few people. And uh, so these people are going to go to Paul to get some clarification on his role as apostle, on his, uh, uh, to validate his position as an apostle, and for answers to some of their questions and some guidance as to how to resolve the internal conflicts. So Paul is going to write this epistle and send it by way of Timothy. And Timothy knew uh, doctrine, but he too was inexperienced, and he did not... Uh, ultimately resolve the problem, and so finally Paul had to send Titus, and Titus took this, and Titus seems to have been able to straighten things out in Corinth. So Paul begins in verse 1 with the basic uh, opening that Paul uses in almost every epistle, and if you want to do an interesting study sometime, do a comparison of Paul's salutations from one epistle to another. They always give you some clue as to why he is writing the epistle. The introduction extends down through verse 17. And in this introduction, we will discover the basic themes that Paul will emphasize throughout this epistle. He begins in verse 1, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. He refers to himself as Paul. This is the name by which he is known. It's his Greek name by which he is known after his salvation. Prior to his salvation, he was known by his uh, Hebrew name Saul. He was named after the first king of Israel, who was also from the tribe of Benjamin, as Paul was. And uh, it was when he trusted the Lord on the road to Damascus that Paul. After that, that Paul changes his name and is known as Paul rather than Saul of Tarsus. It's translated in, in the uh, New American Standard as called as an apostle, although the as is not in the original Greek. What you have in the original Greek is the simple phrase kletos apostolos, which means called an apostle. Greek does not have an indefinite article in it. In English, we have definite article, a definite article, which is the word the, which indicates specificity, and then we also have an indefinite article, a or an. Uh, Greek does not operate in that same way. If, uh, uh, there, if it, the word does not have the article, it may be for a number of reasons. A word can be definite in Greek and not have the article simply because the author is emphasizing the quality. Of the noun, which is what I think is happening here, that this is an anarthrous noun. Anarthrous means it doesn't have an article, but he's emphasizing the quality here. This is a major issue in this epistle the issue of Paul's qualifications as an apostle and the issue of Paul's authority. So I think that he is emphasizing this by the use of an anarthrous noun here, indicating that he is just as much an apostle as Peter or James, or John, or any of the others who were with our Lord during his time on the earth. And by that I don't mean James, the Lord's brother, I mean James, the brother of, uh, of John. So Paul says he's called an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, why does Paul start with this? Paul starts with this, as I've said, simply because he was not a part of the original 12. Now, what's happened in liberal theology starting in the late 19th century was liberals came along and said that Paul really revised Christ's theology. So every now and then you'll run across somebody and you'll hear about this through some movie or some new book that's out talking about Paul's, uh, how Paul changed what Jesus taught. And that came out of 19th century liberalism because of the very... Beginning, liberals reject the concept of the inspiration and authority of Scripture. Paul's teaching was no different from Jesus' teaching. There are some superficial discrepancies, but they're only superficial. One of the greatest scholars of the 20th century was a man by the name of J. Gresham Machin, who was one of the greatest defenders of Orthodox, and by that I mean correct biblical Christianity in contrast to liberalism, and he wrote a book called The Origin of Paul's Religion back in the 20s, where he demonstrates beyond any shadow of a doubt that what Paul taught was the same thing that is taught in the Gospels. The problem is the liberals utilize uh, their favorite methodology of just ignoring um, a reputation for their position. That's always the best way to handle an argument that you can't refute is you just ignore it and marginalize it and forget it as if it's a non-issue. So uh, Machen is too often ignored, and yet he has some brilliant things to say and brilliant observations to make. Uh, the problem was that Paul was not one of the original 12. He was added later as a replacement for Judas Iscariot. Now, the apostles under Peter try to uh, replace Judas themselves and they did, and that's covered in Acts chapter 1. I want you to notice, turn there with me to Acts chapter 1, and I want you to notice in that passage that they seem very uh, sanctimonious, very religious, very sincere, and they're going to articulate a, what sounds to be a very sincere prayer. Now, there's a lot of disagreement over just exactly what happens here most of the time you'll hear somebody say that this was legitimate and they actually did choose Matthias as the 12th apostle but they missed the point and we will explain the point in just a minute what had happened was there were 12 apostles during Jesus' incarnation the 12th one was Judas Judas was not a believer he betrayed the Lord and then he committed suicide so while They're waiting in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come. And notice Jesus gave them no instructions about replacing Judas. Uh, Peter gets the idea that they need to uh, replace uh, Judas. So he comes along, and let's get the context starting in about verse um, 20, uh, 21. Peter suggests to this crowd, he gets together 120 believers, and they're going to elect a... A replacement for Judas. Verse 21, 20, um, where are we? 21, he says, Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Notice that he recognizes one of the qualifications of an apostle is that they are a witness of the resurrection. Now, that's important. Today, you will hear uh, people claiming to be apostles. But unless they are over 1,900 years old, they can't be an apostle because one of the qualifications for an apostle is that they were a witness of the resurrection. And if they claim that Jesus in his resurrected body has appeared to them as he did to the apostle Paul, well, perhaps we ought to talk to them about whether or not they need to get on Prozac or Zoloft or some other uh, medication so Paul I mean Peter recognizes that, the, that an apostle needed to be a witness of the resurrection and so the group that's gathered there suggests two Joseph called Barsabbas who was also called Justice and then a second man named Matthias and so they prayed, now that's always the good way you'll find Christians solving problems even when they're out of fellowship is they're all going to uh, try to make it look good and put God's stamp of approval on it, and so they're going to pray. But God is not authorizing this, and this prayer doesn't get any higher than the ceiling. They prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the last time you hear anything about Matthias. He's not mentioned again. We never hear of him again. He disappears from the pages of church history and tradition, and that is one indication that he had no significant role to play as an apostle. Uh, the other is, as we will note in a few minutes when we get into the doctrine of the apostleship, is that The gift of that apostleship is a spiritual gift. It's not simply an office. It is a spiritual gift, and spiritual gifts are sovereignly given by God the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation. They don't come from men. That's why Paul's next statement, turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul's next statement is that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, indicating his relationship to the Lord, that the Lord is the one who has commissioned him. We're going to have to stop in a minute and start looking in detail at the doctrine of apostle, but it basically means someone who is commissioned or sent on a mission. And when you're an apostle of Jesus Christ, the genitive indicates the source of the apostleship or the source of his commission, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ through the will of God. And through the will of God is a, uh, in the Greek it's a dia, preposition dia plus the genitive, and when you have a construction like this, dia followed by a genitive noun, dia, then that indicates means or mode. It is not cause. I think in the old King James it translated that cause, but that's erroneous. It's the same kind of construction you have in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, "...for by grace you have been saved through faith." Dia plus the genitive. It's not because of faith. As soon as you say that faith is the cause of salvation, then you are making faith meritorious. Faith is not the cause of salvation, neither is uh, lack of faith the cause of condemnation. Now, John 3:18 says, "...he who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already." But don't make the mistake of saying that that if you don't believe, you're you're condemned because you didn't believe. As soon as you put that causal construction in there, you're implying that faith is meritorious. Uh, When you don't believe, you don't receive the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's the failure to possess the uh, imputed righteousness of Christ that's the basis for condemnation at the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. We are not condemned for our sins because those sins have already been paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ. Remember, two things are necessary in order to have salvation. One, the penalty has to be paid. And the penalty was paid in full by Jesus Christ on the cross. But that didn't solve all of the problems. The other problem is that man is minus R and he does not have the perfect righteousness that God demands. And it is only when we put our faith alone in Jesus Christ that it is through faith that God then imputes to the believer or credits to his account at the instant of salvation perfect righteousness. And it is on the basis of that perfect righteousness then that God declares the believer to be justified. Both righteousness and justified, justification come from the same uh, word group in the Greek, which is based on the noun decay, which means to be right, to be just, to be uh, justified, justification. All of those words come from that word group. You have words like dikai'ao for the verb and dikai'asune for the noun. All of those indicate something to do with righteousness or justification. So justification occurs only because the believer possesses the perfect righteousness of Christ, not simply because the penalty is paid. The, penalty of, is, the payment of the penalty is related to the doctrine of redemption, but that is not the only aspect of Christ's penalty on the cross. I'm, Christ, the pay, Christ's payment of the penalty on the cross. So Jesus Christ paid our penalty in full, and so sin is no longer the issue. The issue is whether or not we possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. And we get that only through faith. So that is the means. Same kind of construction you have here. Paul called an apostle. Take out the as. called an apostle of Jesus Christ through, by, or through the will of God. And then he includes with him and Sosthenes... And there is no word for our in the English. It has to be added simply to give it a little better reading in English. Sosthenes, our brother. So that brings us down to where we need to talk about the doctrine of apostleship. But before we get there, we need to look at one other passage or cross-reference to understand the source of apostleship. And that is in Galatians chapter 1 verse 1. Paul had the same problem with the Galatian believers and so he had to in his introduction to the epistle to the Galatians, emphasize his uh, gift of apostle. There we read Paul, an apostle. And then he adds, "...not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead." Notice in that verse, the first thing he says about being an apostle is it's not from men. Now, the New American Standard translates that not sent from men, and I don't think that's the uh, best translation there. It is not, the the apostleship did not come from men. He did not, it was not bestowed upon him by a group of men. In the Greek, this is the uh, preposition apa plus the accusative, And he is emphasizing the fact that he did not receive his apostleship from a group of men, not like Matthias in Acts chapter 1, in other words. They didn't get together and bestow the gift on him or choose him or elect him. He's indicating that the gift of apostleship does not come from the source of men, a college of men, a college of cardinals, a, uh, a board of deacons, or any other group. Then he says, secondly... Neither does it come through men. And this is dia plus the genitive, which indicates means or instrumentality. And he says, neither does it come through the means or instrumentality of a man. It comes only through Jesus Christ. It is a divine commission and a divine appointment, and it is not based on men. You can't bestow it on yourself. Your church can't bestow it on you. A group of uh, men cannot bestow it on you. It only comes from the Lord Jesus Christ and of course it is in Acts chapter 9 that when, when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus that Jesus Christ personally commissioned him as an apostle so let's look at about five points or six points under the doctrine of apostleship eight points first point Definition. Apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos. It comes from the Greek word apostolos, which means someone who is commissioned and sent on a mission. A P O S T O L O S. It refers to someone who is sent on a mission. It is a word that is not used very much in classical Greek literature. There are a few instances of it where it is is used to describe the mission of a military or naval um, commander or a governor of a Greek colony, but outside of a few uses, it is a rare noun. The verb apostello, which means to send, is used much more frequently. And uh, But one of the things we always have to remember when we get into the New Testament and you get into New Testament vocabulary is that the background for understanding these words is more often than not Hebrew and the Old Testament concepts rather than uh, 5th century B.C. classical Greek. That's for terminology, not, not for understanding certain kinds of constructions and idioms. Sometimes you have to go back to other forms of Greek to get a greater insight into some of the idioms that are there. But in terms of vocabulary, the precedent for the vocabulary is the Old Testament, because that's where God revealed certain things. And remember, the disciples and the apostles are all Jews, and that is their frame of reference, and that's their background. And in the synagogue, there had developed a technical use of the Hebrew verb shalach, which means to send out as a personal envoy or a representative. And this person was called the Sheliach. And this is a much stronger word for the background of understanding the meaning of apostleship, someone who is sent out as a personal envoy or representative. And that was exactly the function of an apostle in the church. He is a personal envoy or representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there were two categories of apostles in the New Testament. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, there weren't just twelve apostles. There were fifteen or sixteen or seventeen or eighteen, depending on how they add them up. Barnabas is referred to as an apostle. Junius is referred to as an apostle in another place. Um, You have various uses of the word apostle. And that's where it's important to recognize that there is a common and a technical use of the word apostle. And it depends on who sends, who does the commissioning. That determines the difference between the technical use and the common use. In the technical use, which refers to the twelve apostles... Jesus Christ is the one who sends. In the common or everyday use which related to men who were commissioned by a local church, they were sent out as missionaries or on some specific uh, errand or mission. So in the common use, it refers to local missions uh, or it refers to the local church sending out Missionaries onto the field. And for that reason, some other men were called apostles, but they did not receive the commission from the Lord Jesus Christ. They received it from a local church. So remember, the word is used in the New Testament in both a technical sense and in a general or common sense. And the difference is has to do with who does the commissioning. The unique spiritual gift was only given to 12 men, 11 of the original disciples outside of Judas Iscariot, and then Paul. And for reference to that, you can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 7 through 10. This was a temporary spiritual gift, and it vanished from history with the death of the Apostle John about 96 A.D. And then the second use had to do with a pioneer missionary, or someone who was specifically commissioned by a local church to uh, fulfill a specific mission. and you can find a reference to that usage in Acts chapter 14, verse 14 and Romans 16 verse seven. That's Acts 14:14 14, 14, and Romans 16:7. Point number three: a spirit, uh, the gift of apostleship was a spiritual gift. Apostleship was a spiritual gift. By definition, therefore, it could not be bestowed by man. All spiritual gifts are sovereignly bestowed at the instant of salvation by God the Holy Spirit. Whether it's the gift of teaching, the gift of apostleship, the gift of evangelism, the gift of giving, the gift of administration, the gift of service, or whatever spiritual gift it is, it is given at the instant of salvation. Every one of you has at least one spiritual gift. And you will discover that perhaps as you grow and advance and mature in the spiritual life. Too often people get caught up trying to figure out what their spiritual gift is. And I think that's probably indicative of, um, of uh, spiritual adolescence. It's the same thing happens when you're growing up. You hit 12, 13, you're trying, 14 years of age. You're trying to figure out what you're going to be when you grow up. Some of you are still trying to figure out what you're going to be when you grow up. Some of you are still trying to figure out if you're going to grow up. But uh, what happens as you are growing up in regular life, going to school, you get involved in various activities. Some things just don't appeal to you at all. You know you don't have any talent. You're not going to get involved in the choir at school because you know you can't sing. You know that uh, you're not going to get involved in playing basketball because you're only five feet tall. You know, there are certain things you know that you just are not going to have much of a talent for. Other things you're very interested in. And uh, guys might get involved. They might take some courses in shop and discover they like carpentry or they might get involved in auto mechanics or whatever it might be. And uh, as you go through those teenage years, you begin to discover certain things you uh, are attracted to, certain things you have an affinity for. And then as you get a little older, you begin to focus on those things. As a byproduct of maturity, you begin to realize that you have certain areas of interest and certain areas where you don't have interest. It's the same thing in the spiritual life. The issue isn't to try to figure out what your spiritual gift is because in terms of most of the spiritual gifts that are operational today, there's still a responsibility in those areas for every single believer. Just because you don't have the gift of giving doesn't mean you don't have a responsibility as a believer priest to give generously. Other people have the gift of giving, and I, th- I have discovered, I think, this isn't doctrine, this is my opinion from experience, that it seems to me that a lot of people who have the gift of giving somehow seem to have the gift of making money. And I know a couple of people like this, and um, they seem to have the gift of making money, and they enjoy making money so that they can give it away to support doctrine, to support missions, to support local churches. And that's a fantastic operation of that gift. Now, not everybody who has the gift of giving, I think, has the gift of making money like that, but a few people do. Other people have the gift of service, but that doesn't mean that if you don't have the gift of service that you're not responsible or accountable in the spiritual life for serving one another. That's commanded of all believers. Uh, We're all commanded to be witnesses and to be involved in witnessing, but not every believer has the gift of evangelism. Everybody just about is expected to teach at some level. If you're a parent, it's your responsibility, not the church's, to teach your children doctrine. It's your responsibility to explain the gospel to your kids, and you ought to start reading Bible stories to them, especially stories about the Lord, uh, when they're as as soon as they're old enough to start understanding that at the age of two or even even before that so that they can start developing that frame of reference and that vocabulary and you never know when their uh, God consciousness is going to kick in and they're going to respond to the gospel. We're all responsible to function in almost every area of spiritual gifts, but some people are going to discover as they give, as they serve, as they teach, that they really have an affinity for it, that they really enjoy it, that they really um, have a specific gift in that area. And so as they grow and mature in the spiritual life, these things will become evident as a byproduct of it. So the gift of apostleship was a spiritual gift. It was given by God the Holy Spirit and uh, was given to the church along with other spiritual gifts according to 1 Corinthians twelve, twenty-eight and 29 where Paul says, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Notice he ranks Apostles, prophets, and teachers, and of those, the first two are temporary gifts. Now, I'll show why prophets are temporary in a minute. When we look at Ephesians 2.20, we'll see that apostles and prophets are foundational gifts. So that raises teaching to a higher level, and that is because the teacher of the Word of God is the one who feeds the sheep. The responsibility of the pastor-teacher is to feed the congregation, so that they can grow and mature in their spiritual life. If you don't have the right nourishment, the right food, the right sustenance from the Word of God, then you can't grow as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what's happened in so many churches across our country today, is they are doctrinally impoverished. There is no teaching coming out of the pulpit. There's a lot of verbiage coming out of the pulpit, a lot of hot air, but there's, and, and beautiful rhetoric, but there's no doctrine. So people don't grow. And then Paul ranks other spiritual gifts, such as miracles, gifts of healing, helps, administration, various kinds of languages. And then he says, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers. In other words, not everybody has the same gifts. They are distributed according to the sovereign will of God's Holy Spirit. Well, third point, what are the qualifications for apostles? Three qualifications for the gift of apostle. First of all, they're appointed by God, the Holy Spirit, and commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 to 11. Appointed by the Holy Spirit, commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our passage, First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.1 and Galatians 1.1. 1. 1. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Second qualification they were to be an eyewitness of the resurrection or have seen the resurrected Christ. First Corinthians fifteen, eight through nine, and Acts one twenty two. And Acts one twenty twenty two also seems to suggest that they had some witnessing or they were also a witness of the teaching of the Lord during his incarnation. Now I've never heard anybody stress that, but it seems logical. Now, what about Paul? Paul never seems to stress that either. But if you lay Paul's life over the chronology of the New Testament, it becomes obvious that Paul must have been in Jerusalem at the same time the Lord Jesus Christ was in Jerusalem. Paul was born in Tarsus, which is up in Asia Minor. And when he was 13 years of age, he was sent down to Jerusalem to study at the rabbinical school headed up by Gamaliel. And he was in training to be a rabbi. And that was the standard age at which, when anybody would be sent to Jerusalem. And so at the most liberal guess, Paul was probably at least 25. I think he was probably a little older than that. But he was probably at least 25 when we first see him in Acts 7 at the stoning of Stephen. Acts 7, Acts 8. That's the first time we see see this person, Saul of Tarsus. Now, if he's 25 then, then he has been in Jerusalem for 12 years. Now, most people date the stoning of Stephen somewhere between 35 and 37 A.D. The Lord was crucified in 33 A.D. Well, if you take 12 from 37, you end up with 25. Our Lord began his ministry approximately 29 to 30 A.D., So that means Paul would have been in Jerusalem at least three years before our Lord started his public ministry, and he would have been attending a rabbinical school during the entire time of our Lord's ministry during the Incarnation. Now, it seems to me from all the indications in the Gospel of John and the Synoptic Gospels that you couldn't live in Jerusalem without hearing something about this carpenter's son from Nazareth who... Uh, claimed to be God and who claimed to be the Messiah. And so it's very likely that in that environment, the Apostle Paul saw or witnessed the Lord and his teaching on numerous occasions. However, uh, he was not a believer at that time, and like many of the other Pharisees, he was probably hanging on watching them ridicule and challenge the Lord, and he was egging them on in the background, uh, watching to see how they could... uh, overturned his arguments. So it seems to me that he was, he would have been, though he was an unbeliever, a witness of many events in the life of Christ. So, first qualification appointed by the Holy Spirit, second qualification, an eyewitness of the resurrection or seen the resurrected Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 8 and 9 and Acts one twenty two, And then third, they were endued with miraculous powers. They were given along with the gift of apostleship, they were given other spiritual gifts. I think they had the gift of healing, they had the gift of, in some cases, the gift of languages, they had um, gifts of miracles, and this all went with the gift of apostleship. For reference, you can look at Acts 5:15 and Acts 16:16 16, 16 to 18. Now no one today or in church history since approximately 95 AD has this spiritual gift, and the purpose for miracles and many of these other sign gifts were to validate the ministry and the doctrine of the apostles. It was their calling card. It got people's attention, and it validated their message. In Acts 2.43, we read, "...and everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles." Now, if you look at most of the miracles, casting out of demons... Uh, healings that took place in the New Testament. It's restricted pretty much to the apostles and Philip and maybe one or two other people, but it is not a wide variety of people who have these abilities. Acts 5.12, And at the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch outside the temple. And then 2 Corinthians 12.12 12 gives us the significance of this. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. See, that's in Second Corinthians. Paul still has to deal with his authenticating his apostleship to the Corinthian believers even in the 2nd epistle. And there he reminds them that he uh, performed signs and, work, signs and wonders and miracles in their presence, which validated his claim to be an apostle. So these were three qualifications to be an apostle, and that's one reason why it is no longer uh, valid today. Fourth point, apostleship came after the ascension of Christ. There were no apostles before the ascension of Christ. Now, at some point, somebody's going to uh, tell you that you had apostles in Matthew 10 when the disciples were sent out, but Matthew 10 precedes the church. There is no, no mention of the church until six chapters later in Matthew, in Matthew 16:18, where Jesus said that the, he will build his church, which is future tents. So there's no church in Matthew, there's no church before the crucifixion and the ascension, and therefore there are no apostles until after the ascension of Christ. They're not sent out until after the ascension. So the fourth point is that apostleship comes only after the ascension of Christ. Fifth point, apostles were recipients of direct revelation from God and were the only authorized source uh, for divine revelation. The apostles were recipients of direct revelation from God and were the only authorized source for revelation. Now, when you look at the New Testament, there are several writers in the New Testament that weren't apostles. Mark was not an apostle. Luke was not an apostle. Jude was not an apostle. But these were men that wrote under the authority of an apostle, one of the twelve. You have Jude and James were brothers of the Lord. You have uh, Mark writing under the authority of Peter. And you have Luke writing under the authority of the apostle Paul. So the apostles were recipients of direct revelation from God, and they were the only ones authorized to provide new revelation. Once they disappeared, there there was no more revelation. Now, you're always going to find somebody who's going to come up to you and say that God spoke to them. Well, God no longer speaks in a verbal, audible manner like he did in the Scriptures. Now, God may put some things in your mind in some sense... God may, um, you know, Nehemiah uses that terminology. I always like that. Nehemiah Nehemiah will say, well, God put it in my mind to build the wall. And he recognizes that the inclination to do certain things has its ultimate source in God, but it's not this kind of mystical uh, thing that that, uh, people often come up with that God was speaking uh, to them. God no longer speaks as he did in the Old Testament or during the incarnation, where you have this verbal, audible revelation. Point number six. Our excuse, yes. Point number six. This will be our last um, last point. Point number six or seven. I think I've got out of line there. Point number seven. The apostolic gift died out in the first generation there was no provision for successors you look through the new testament and there's no indication of a successor for the gift of apostle they're not it's not passed on through the laying on of hands there is no such thing as apostolic succession now that term was originally used in the next century in the 2nd century But at first, it did not refer to a succession of individuals. See, that was the perversion of it as it came down later into the Roman Catholic Church. It wasn't a succession of individuals, but a succession of doctrine. You were a successor of the apostles if you taught the same doctrine the apostles taught. That's what the term of apostolic succession originally meant, was a succession of doctrine. You stood in the same line. Of teaching of as the apostles and taught the same thing that they did. But there was no claim to one individual passing on the gift to the next individual and the gift going from generation to generation until much later in church history. Even Peter in his uh, first epistle did not claim the gift of apostleship. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he simply refers to himself as a fellow bishop. He does not refer to himself as an apostle. Paul says in verse 1 that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. That brings us to verse 2 where he addresses the church. To the church of God which is at Corinth. Now notice, he says this is the church of God. This is a genitive construction. Indicating, indicating the owner of the church. It's a genitive of possession or a genitive of ownership, and he's emphasizing the fact that the church is God's church. It's not the church of one clique or another clique in the congregation. It is God's church. It's not Apollos' church. It's not Paul's church. It's not Peter's church. It is God's church, and God is the only one, therefore, who has the right to dictate the plans and policies of a local church so he says to the church of God which is at Corinth to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus and here we have the perfect passive participle of the of hagiasmas, which means to be set apart those who have been set apart in Christ Jesus see too often we get this idea that sanctified has something to do with with being holy or pure or righteous and it simply means to be set apart it does not mean to be perfect in life some people have uh, said that the church wasn't written i mean that the bible wasn't written to um uh to saints but to sinners well that that is a false classification all saints are sinners everyone who is a believer in the lord jesus christ at the instant of salvation is set apart In Jesus Christ. That's the emphasis of the uh, grammatical construction here. This is a perfect passive participle. The perfect tense indicates that this is something that happened in the past with results that continue into the present. It happened in the past when they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They have been sanctified. It's a one time act that takes place at the instant of salvation, and we call it positional sanctification. And then he goes on to say that they are saints by calling. And here he uses the uh, dative plural of hagias. Hagias is the noun that's the root of hagiasmas. So you have those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. So just as Paul was called to be an apostle, they have been called to be saints. And this is true for every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is at the instant of salvation, we are positionally sanctified or set apart to the service of God, and we are designated saints. Being a saint has nothing to do with your lifestyle. It has nothing to do with your morality. It has nothing to do with your volition. It has everything to do with who you are in Jesus Christ. So every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ at the instant of salvation becomes a saint. It is not some special category or classification of um, successful believers. And this is indicated by the fact that he says to the Corinthians. Now, remember, this is one of the most screwed up bunch of Christians that ever existed on the planet. There's, There's no sin that they left unpracticed. And he says they're still sanctified and they are still saints. And this is important to understand this, to understand the nature of many things that he is going to say in this epistle. So he addresses it to the believers who are called saints in the church of Corinth, God's church, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now this last phrase is added in order to emphasize that uh, the Corinthians are not any special group. See, apparently they were uh, so proud of themselves that they thought that they had a special uh, level of spirituality because they they were uh, speaking in, in tongues and they were doing all of this other stuff. They thought that they were, were better than all of the other churches. And so what Paul is doing in this last phrase is saying that you are a church just like every other church and what makes you a church is your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says with this, with all those who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a dative of association, and he is indicating that they are associated with every other believer, and there is nothing special about being a believer in Corinth that makes them any better or any worse than being a believer in Thessalonica, a believer in Athens, a believer in Ephesus, or a believer in Jerusalem. And he says, "...with all those who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ." And this term, "...call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ," is taken out of Joel uh, chapter 2 where it indicates those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And so this is a, a term that is used of someone who has put their faith alone in Christ alone for salvation. So he says, "...you're a saint by calling with all who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ," indicating once again that that every believer is a saint by calling. With the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, indicating that they all serve one Lord. And there is no distinction between uh, the church in Corinth and any other church. Then in verse 3, he gives a, a greeting. Now, there are some people who will emphasize this when they teach. They'll say, well, this is just a common greeting. Grace, karain E-I-N, ending, karain was the standard way the Greeks would greet each other. And peace in Hebrew was shalom, and that was a typical greeting for Jews. And that's true, but Paul puts his own touch to this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't use the standard Greek greeting, karen. He uses the word for grace, which is uh, charos. C H A R I S. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit he's going to take the common everyday salutation that you would find in a letter and he's going to tweak it. And he's going to tweak it so that it has a doctrinal impact. He is emphasizing that grace comes from God and it extends to us. And it comes and its source is God our Father. He's going to use the uh, same genitive phrase there that we saw him using re- related to the gift of apostleship over in Galatians 1.1. He's going to use "apa" plus the genitive, indicating the ultimate source of grace and peace. He is going to connect these two because the only source of grace and peace in life is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It does not come from circumstances. It does not come from the details of life. It does not come from other people. It does not come from uh, financial success or uh, vocational success. It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and applying doctrine, then you will never have peace in your life. And no matter how horrible the circumstances of your life If you have a solid relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and you're applying doctrine, then you will have peace that surpasses all comprehension. So Paul just subtly reminds us of this in his salutation, grace to you and peace, which comes from the ultimate source of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that brings us to the doctrine of positional truth. Before we go any further, we're going to have to look at three key doctrines that become the background for understanding what Paul is going to say. And there's a doctrine of positional truth, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the doctrine of sanctification. And we'll have time for one of those this morning. Just a brief review of the doctrine of positional truth. First of all, positional truth is not based on experience. It's not based on experience. Positional truth is based on a reality that occurs at the instant of salvation. You don't feel a thing. You may have the flu. You may be dying like the thief on the cross. You may be in physical misery. Uh, Nevertheless, you are uh, identified with Christ. It's not based on experience. It has to do with your identification with Christ. Point number two, it's absolute. It's not progressive. It's absolute. It's not progressive. That's why Paul says you, are, you have been sanctified. That relates to the doctrine of positional truth. You are saints. It's absolute. At the instant of salvation, it is an absolute position that we have in Christ. It's not based on, on our experience. We can't improve it. We can't increase it. We can't get more of it later on. There's no such thing as a second blessing or a second work of grace or a third work of grace. We get it all at salvation. That is part of our position. We can't improve on our position at all. Second Corinthians 5.17 states that we are a new creature because we are in Christ, not because of what we do. So it is our position in Christ that brings all of these uh, blessings and assets to us. Point number three, our position in Christ, our sanctification, our position as saints is not related to human merit or human morality in any way. It's not related to what we do, what we don't do. It's not based on how good we are or how, how sinful we've been. It's based on Christ's work on the cross and our identification with him. Point number four, It is eternal. We cannot lose it. This relates to eternal security. If you understand positional truth, you'll never have a problem with eternal security. Once we are identified with Christ, that can never be reversed. Point number five, it's known only by the word of God. You were saved, you didn't have a clue about positional truth. You never heard the term. you might not have heard it for five or ten years till, five or ten years after you were saved. But then you were sitting in Bible class and you heard somebody teach it, and then you learned that at the point of salvation, you were entered into union with Christ, and you understood the doctrine of positional truth. And it is not signified by speaking in tongues. That's the Pentecostal heresy. They thought that it came after salvation, and the sign of it was speaking in tongues. Point number six, it is received completely at the instant of regeneration. Received completely at the instant of regeneration. Well, that's just a brief overview of the doctrine of positional truth, and the way we enter into Christ is through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, And we don't have time to cover that this morning, so I'll start there next time with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and how we are entered into union with Christ, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning and to understand these vital truths about our identification with Christ and our position with him. Father, it begins with a recognition of grace, that salvation is not by works that we have done, but it's according to your mercy. That you provided everything for us at the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal destiny and uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is put your faith alone in Christ alone. You don't need to say anything, you don't need to do anything. God the Father, who is omniscient, knows exactly what you are trusting for your eternal salvation. And at the instant that you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, at that instant, you are identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. You are entered into the body of Christ. You are you receive the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness. You are justified, and you are given eternal life. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied this morning, that we might be challenged by them in our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.